So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. On today's episode, Dr. Paul Grant talks about recovery-oriented cognitive therapy, a new therapy he has developed with Aaron T. Beck, known as the father of cognitive therapy. This therapy was originally created for those with persistent schizophrenia and other serious mental health conditions. However, he also talks on how it could be used to inform treatment for other conditions, such as anxiety and depression. Dr. Grant is a director of research, innovation, and practice at the Beck Institute Center for Recovery-Oriented Cognitive Therapy. Beyond leading development, he also directs large projects implementing this therapy nationally and internationally. Furthermore, he and his co-authors have recently had a new book accepted for publication related to his recent work called Recovery-Oriented Cognitive Therapy for Serious Mental Health Conditions. He has also been the recipient of awards from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, and the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. Now on to the interview. Well, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Um, one question that I've been asking everybody at the beginning of the show is to explain to the audience what their therapeutic approach is. So I was hoping that you could do that to start off. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I originally, um, it's funny, I thought I was going to be uh, psychodynamic. And in my graduate program, there was a very, very popular um, uh, class that was being offered as a practicum by Jacques Barber um, on that, but but there wasn't room for me. Unfortunately, uh, um, Rob DeRubis um, um, invited me to his course, and I learned cognitive therapy from Rob DeRubis. I read um, uh, the 1979 Beck book with a slash on it. Um, I, I read Judy Beck's book and that kind of thing. And so that that was kind of my therapeutic modality um, coming at a um, sort of coming sort of out of grad school. Um, but then um, I sort of met up with uh, Aaron Beck um, and he was really interested in trying to apply these sorts of ideas and his ideas to schizophrenia. Um, and it's not always so well known that uh, in 52, he published his first paper in psychiatry and it was a, as a case study in schizophrenia. So he was working about 70 years ago um, on this kind of thing. Um, and, but he got away from it because, you know, he did boring things like invent the BDI, cognitive therapy, um, and, uh, you know, started applying to all the disorders. But what we ended up finding as we were, as we were going forward in that work is that the traditional cognitive therapy, especially the cognitive therapy um, that focuses on um, thoughts and really sort of reflection and that kind of thing, was pretty much a, no a non-starter with the people that we were working with. We were really focusing on the negative symptoms, um, you know, sort of the people who don't have a lot of energy, they, they have a difficult time having access to motivation, um, and they often just sit there and don't say a lot. So um, trying to get them to catch their thoughts was really very clear to us, kind of like fishing in an empty pond, um, because we needed to do something different. That's not meant to be a, something bad about them. And so over the course of the year, I would say my orientation now is what I would call recovery-oriented cognitive therapy. We can talk more about that later, but, it, but it, what it has in common with the original cognitive therapy is the cognitive model. And so we very much use the cognitive model, although we've, we've expanded it. We can talk about that, too, oh. to not just think about problems, but also to think about potential with it um, and really to help people um, realize what, what I would like to call a best self. Um, so we have a whole sort of target that's like that. And then what we do is very, very action oriented because the same person I was telling you can't reflect on their thoughts. You can get them singing. You can get them telling you how to do a recipe or if they're really religious, they can tell you how, to, how they practice. Um, but other than that, they might seem almost impossible to break through to. And I've had them describe it as there's a wall. So recovery to cognitive therapy, we can talk more about it, but that's certainly my orientation. Cognitive model at the center, really action oriented, really focused on people's lives, less than reducing um, problems for them. So it's really about, um, in that way, it probably seems a little bit like, um, like um, uh, sort of uh, the coaching that, that people get when they want to be even happier, you know, but it's really finding out what they want in life, what their values are and how to get that into everyday life and then to develop their sense of empowerment 
with regard to whatever the challenges are that got them into the level of care that they might be in. Because at this point in time, um, I've probably worked with um, everything you've ever read about in a psychiatric textbook, any kind of um, real, real challenge that doctors have written about for the last 200 years. I see practically on a daily basis and we're able to actually make progress and people with almost no education can do it. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned that um, when you were formulating this therapy, it was for schizophrenia and psychosis. And then um, you now broaden this to be a therapy, you know, for depression, anxiety that could be used outside of the hospital settings for various different conditions. But I just briefly, would you mind describing to people like what is what is schizophrenia? Because a lot of people have a misinterpretation of what they, a lot of people think it's like having multiple personalities. Sure. So what is schizophrenia? Um, sure. Why is it useful? And then how sure. did you then expand it out to the other stuff? Sure. No, I, I definitely um, jumped there because that's right. I realize it's not it's not common knowledge. So it's not it's not a great diagnosis. I'll start with that. Um, and, you know, it has a history that goes back about 110, 15 years. Um, but but it pulls in experiences which I think are quite real for people. And that's where the bedrock is. Um, and so these are going to be people that in terms of a DSM way of thinking about them, um, they might very well have beliefs that are difficult to understand. The field is called those delusions. Um, they may have um, perceptions that other people don't share. Um, so that might be hearing hearing things. It might be seeing things. Um, they could feel stuff inside of them. They can smell things. Um, and, you know, and, and sometimes they're really distressed by these things or very much taken over by them. There's also the way in which the, their communications are, are disrupted. Um, the, the traditional term for that also, I think, is a little bit in question, like thought disorder, that kind of thing. But really, mm-hmm. the their communication and their actual overall appearance can sometimes be really disorganized as well, sort of out of out of sync with the um, the environment. Um, and then the thing I was talking about um, is the negative symptoms, which is again very poorly named thing, but but a very recognizable thing um, uh, in the psychiatric literature for a very very long time, which is that p- people who sit still in day rooms for all day and don't do anything, they don't talk to people, they don't have friends. Many of the people that that uh, I work with have never had a friend or barely a friend, never had anything like love in their life, all that kind of stuff. So the na- those are the negative symptoms. And there's a, there's, a, there's a fifth category, which we don't talk about as much anymore, which is catatonia, um, just because we don't see it that much. Um, but but when I have seen it, um, so I think it's actually might have even, uh, it's just less emphasized. Um, and uh, when I have seen it, I think it's a negative anxiety response, just for what it's worth. But the person, it's, it's the freeze part of the trauma reaction. It's, the person freezes, but then they might freeze so extremely that they will die because people who have catatonia die because they don't drink enough water. Hey, is that, is that the, the, um, the, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, the, um, the other thing that, that in the United States, starting with the DSM three, um, the U S used to have a really loose definition of what was called schizophrenia. And so you half the people or not more that you mean the state hospital got that diagnosis, but, uh, there was some sense that that was too broadly cast. So if you know anybody in their 70s or 80s who got this diagnosis when they were younger, that might have been this broader one. So to try to tighten it, the, the definition um, the definition starting with DSM-3 really requires a significant functional impairment um, for at least six months. Um, and, and I think most of the people I work with have pretty significant life life impairment for sure. Although, impair- you know, I think it's not permanent or anything, but that's, that's the way in which in the U.S. to try to pin down the diagnosis. So okay. that's, I, and I'm not including some of the other things people talk about, but we can talk about that in terms of attention, memory, and all that kind of neurocognitive mm-hmm. stuff. So you did a really beautiful thing here. You saw a whole class of people that were not getting treatment because people, it sounds like they, they had given up just because they were so pulled into themselves that they couldn't do traditional forms of therapies. And you said, well, how do, these people need help too. How, how do we help them? And it sounds like that was the foundation of then, of then moving forward with it. That's correct. That, that's yeah. totally right. I realized they didn't answer the other part of your question. Oh, yeah, please, please. Um, which is how to extend it beyond, beyond yep. that. Yeah, but I was just um, about to ask it. So here's how that happened. Um, you know, we um, we started exactly where you're talking about. We worked with outpatients originally, and we interviewed um, family members, the individuals themselves, also providers. And that's why we honed in on negative symptoms, because, you know, as some somebody said to me, if you had a magic wand, I could help the person get up every morning and get into their day. That would make a huge difference. And there's nothing in the literature to help us with that. So that's kind of where we began. Um, and we extended into we, we did a clinical trial about 10 years ago and that made a little bit of buzz. And then we got interested in, in implementation. 
Um, and we did it. We've done a big implementation project in, uh, in Philadelphia that's still ongoing. Um, and we had another one in Georgia, which um, is still going, but we're, we're, we pulled back from it um, because they can take care of it themselves. But one of the things that happens is once you get into community mental health and you're working with um, um, assertive community treatment teams or you're working in a VA setting, people come with all their stuff, whatever it might be that's getting in their way. It could be depression, it could be anxiety. You know, we, we saw a lot of OCD. We saw a lot of panic. Um, and so we needed to be able to extend the model to, to, to address all these things. And what we knew for sure we had is we had Beck's cognitive model. So we had a way of thinking about these, these how people are getting stuck in terms of beliefs. It's a very easy model to work with families um, and providers and even individuals with. It's, it's pretty pretty intuitive to pick it up. Can you explain um, the model? Get away for, with, at least in my area. Yeah. Hmm? Can you explain oh, the model um, uh, for people that aren't yeah. familiar? Oh, yeah, of course. That's right. Yeah. Wouldn't know it. <laughs> necessarily. It's true. Yeah. So this is basically Beck's model of, of thinking of, of psychopathology in terms of personal beliefs. Um, and so he published the paper on this, which I think is a revolutionary paper in psychiatry, unread, but revolutionary, um, in 1963, while Kennedy was still president. Um, and it lays out the basic ideas that it's beliefs about self. So um, and those are usually related to your sense of efficacy or your sense of value in yourself. Um, and then beliefs about other people, um, which is really about belonging and also having social efficacy. Um, and, and then really about the future. Um, and this is a big one for the people that we work with because they have, as you, 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 you rightly picked up, a sort of sense of foreshortened or non-existent future. So really is this sort of switching from, I don't have a future to something better. So, so that's the way that most of um, the Beck model applies to all forms of psychopathology. And there's different variations on that, that sort of go with the clumpings that um, the, the diagnostic manuals have put together. Um, and so, so that's what that, so we knew we had that. And that's why we, we when we go into any community setting, that model has been applied for 60 years now to so many different challenges. There's a heck of a lot of evidence supporting it all over the place. So I would say our theoretical model is pretty much pinned down. And so 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 then when we would run into to OCD or when we run into somebody who really had a who was suicidal, actually one of the one of the great um, extensions we made is uh, to aggressive behavior, um, people who tend to act out, and also self injury. Again, those are those are ones that I have a really good um, cognitive model for. Um, but our innovation was to, to pull in this positive piece um, that I've been telling you about, um, and that becomes really what is the core of it. And then you deal with the problems in the heart of that. So rather than us just assuming that once the person um, psychopathology is reduced, they'll go back to life. We never assume that because our, our for our people we knew it wasn't true, um, but just across the board um, it has it has hasn't been true. And, and so a lot of people don't know that negative and positive affect are actually. A lot of people don't know that negative and positive affect aren't just on one continuum. That they're they're two different continuums, and that just because the negative goes down doesn't mean that the positive is then gonna shoot up. Well, that's and right. That's right. And we we actually have I, I can talk about this a little bit if you're interested. Um, but but so. So when we look at the cognitive model, it becomes our, our, um, our roadmap because we just flip it over. So, so what we think about is um, when the person is at their best, when they really feel like they're at their best, what are they doing? What are they feeling? And what are they thinking about themselves? What kind of things come up? And the kind of things that come up again and again are things like um, being capable, um, being a good person, um, being able to make a difference, um, being appreciated by others. Um, and really feeling long term, you could you can really have a mission that's going to make the world a better place. Those are all beliefs. Those are all um, they fit right within the cognitive model. The main thing is the switches um, that now we're thinking about the positive beliefs. Um, and the other thing that we've thrown into the mix um, is really Beck's theory of the modes. Um, and he, I think he developed this originally um, when he was thinking about people who all of a sudden become really suicidal, you know, and he's one of the real innovators in thinking about suicide. And he called it the suicidal mode. All of a sudden, everyone, their think, person's thinking, their beliefs, and everything gets sort of taken over by this kind of thing. Um, but we've sort of flipped that over and, and realized that there's what we call the adaptive mode. So there's, again, when somebody's at their best, they seem different. And so, and the reason we see this is because of the work we've done with people in hospitals and things like that. So you have somebody who might have a blanket over their head and they're sitting in the corner. Now, that's, that sends a lot of messages in terms of what they think, how they think of people think about them, you know, the value and everything else that might be conserving energy. But we can have somebody go up to them, you know, and, and, and put on um, a song from the 70s. And all of a sudden the head is moving underneath the, uh, the thing. Um, and then they're moving back and forth. Um, and then they start singing along. And then all of a sudden they seem so different. That takes a second. I could show you a video um, from a nursing home 
um, um, that uh, we use in our trainings um, that's, uh, that's you know, publicly available. And this woman switches from just talking about how she wants to die to, to dancing. So that's why we like the theory of modes. The theory of modes explains these sort of quick shifts and the idea that you have these different kind of processes within your head. So we use the theory of modes and it's useful for us in any context. So we have somebody who's really, really um, stuck inside because of all of their worries or so the more of the OCD presentation. We still think, what are they like at their best? What are the things they really want to be doing? Um, in that context, can they get out? Can they, you know, can they become empowered relative to the, their fears and their worries? One last thing. COVID has changed this a little bit um, because um, we do a lot of um, trainings um, and you know, implementation studies, and especially in New York City. Um, right now, and during the COVID period, um, we have, um, there are nine facilities in New York, state facilities, and, and one um, private one that we're doing work in. So all of a sudden, as this thing is hitting and people, people's friends and, and their individuals are getting sick, people are dying, all this kind of stuff, there was a hell of a lot of stress. Um, and how a lot of so we started using some of our consultation sessions to try to help the staff kind of just take a step back, and figure out what was going on. And we started to realize that the principles that apply to the individual with the blanket over their head or the individual who comes out of their room swinging applies to all of us when we're trying to deal with this sort of not having so much control about what's going to happen and where things are going. So where do our values lie? What are our aspirations? And how do we get that into everyday life? And what are the kinds of things that could be getting in our way that we need empowerment relative to? Fear, anxiety, demoralization. So we ran some, um, because of that experience working with staff, we've actually run some web series now, um, it's hosted on the Back Institute's um, website, but they were live, where we were talking about this. Um, in fact, in the city of Philadelphia, we've been kind of thriving in pandemical times. Um, is kind of what we're what we're looking for. Using the, this as an opportunity to remind ourselves what we care about. We don't have control of the people who get sick and die. And we have people like that that we've lost. It's very hard. But how do we bring their memories forward? How do we really um, keep our eyes on what really matters to us in doing those things? And it really involves connection. So we don't use the word social social distancing. We know it's physical distancing because you have to physical distance because the virus passes physically. But you need to be social. You need to make uh -huh. sure you're having the connections and very much that you have the purpose in your everyday life that really matters to you. Mm. Yeah. And, okay. and that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, no, 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 you, you absolutely <laughs> are. And I have a whole bunch of questions uh, um, for you because this this is new for me. I, I heard you talk on this one time, I think a, a year or two ago. But, you know, th this is, is such an interesting model that that I'm really trying to wrap my head on, you know. How is this different than what I've been trained in traditionally? And, you know, what can I do to implement some of this good stuff that you're doing? So when you're talking about modes, is that akin to like when people talk about, well, I'm so different when I'm at school versus when I'm with my family versus when I'm with my parents that we have different kind of, I don't want to say archetypes, but I guess modes would be, be the phrase and that you shift in it based on the situation that you're in. And with it comes with different thought patterns, emotional patterns. And that's why sometimes when you go back to your family's house, you might act like you were when you were 18 or, or fall into more immature loops or, or whatever it is. Is, is that, is that right? Is that what you're talking about with modes? Yeah, that's, I would say that's pretty close. And obviously, um, and that's why Beck has written about it because he thinks it's adaptive. It's very adaptive in certain environments that you, you, you respond differently than others. And so you're totally on board with that. Um, and what we found with psychopathology is that the things that are adaptive become less adaptive. They work for people some, but they don't work with them always. And so that's, what we try to do with um, our people, again, because there's a lot of stigma associated with some of the things that they have, like the hallucinations, delusions, um, and then really the negative symptoms, not, not doing much, um, is we, we've kind of gathered all together what we're calling a disconnected mode. Because that's the one thing that, 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 that sort of seems to put all of the people we're working with together. They don't have a lot of opportunity for connection, and they, they really seem to be very isolated, separate. Um, and it kind of makes sense, you know, the person who believes that um, they're, they're, they're the king or that they're, you know, the king of Sweden, that kind of thing. People think that's not a very, that's not, you know, smart or not real. And so then that's a point of disconnection. You're always trying to defend yourself. Um, the person who hears voices is worried other people hear it. Um, it says some things they really are embarrassed of, you know. And then the person who's got negative symptoms, they, they just don't do a lot. So they, when they, hey, you want to come and do some stuff with us? Nah, I'll stay here kind of thing. So we think this connection kind of is what, you know, because you wonder why all this stuff hangs together. But we think this connection is kind of the thing that 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 links a lot of the people. Um, it's just horrible epidemiological um, data about, about friends and, and 
relationships and everything. It's just really, really not good. Um, and so, and so our, that's why our, our whole approach is about that. So um, I've written a piece um, for our book that's called um, CTR is Good Medicine, because there's pretty good um, research coming out of the, the public health literature that the best predictors that people will be sick from physical illnesses or that they'll have a shortened life expectancy is disconnection, lack of purpose. So, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and there's a lot of actually really interesting literature going over about 30 or 40 years. Well, what do our people have? Those things. And so, and they have um, a really um, terrible life expectancy as a group. Um, it's, it's 20 to 30 years less than everybody else. Um, and, the, and the latest research I've seen shows that it might even be growing, that, that particular number. So, so our approach is to meet them where they're at and to connect with them and to establish a relationship. So maybe that's why um, a, a more traditional um, ther therapist and, and th therapy orientation likes what we do. So we, we can go in, into implementation settings pretty easily because we emphasize that. Because without that, you can't have anything else. So you have to sort of, but you have to do things together. You don't just talk. You've got to do stuff. And as you get a connection going um, and doing that more, the person gets more energy. They start to trust you. They start to get in the flow of that kind of thing. Then you can have them start to think about their future um, and really think about what they would really want to be doing. Try to crack that open. We call those aspirations. I can, I can talk with you about why we use that word rather than goals. There's a reason. And really sort of what is the meaning of that thing? So let's say we have somebody because a lot of people we have have arrested development. And so they have big ideas about what they would like to do because I think they, they fell behind the race of life. So I'm going to be a nurse. Okay. And this is somebody who's in a hospital who had the blanket over their head. So what we want to find out is what's the best part about being a nurse, right? And it's going to be helping people, making the world a better place, all that kind of thing. That's really great. So we're going to work together on that. But are there ways that today and tomorrow and the next day, we can be making the world a better place. So the things we can do to hit the value. Once we hit that value and we have the connection and we grow the connection outward, um, we're getting, we're getting the, this adaptive mode to come out more often. We're getting these beliefs strengthened. We're strengthening the beliefs. I'm a good person. I can make a difference. And I have possibility. I have possibility. Interesting. So it, it, it's like the, these three, these three main tenants, if I'm getting this correctly. So first you build, you build the connection because if you're disconnected from other people being as we're social animals, if we're not socializing, that's very bad for our mental health. And then once you build that and rapport and that connection with them, then another major part of our species is, is being productive and providing value. Um, you know, so socializing. And so you use the connection, the socializing to help them move towards doing more valued behaviors that are important to them, not to us, but to what they want to do. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's not that there's the old research where they had the people who had this diagnosis making license plates. That's not what we're talking about. Because mm -hmm. um, there, there is the, the, there's what's called moral therapy, which goes all the way back to the, to the 1700s and early 18s. But that was in a religious context. And so productiveness was you know, what society said was productive. And what's so valuable about um, the approach we're taking is it's very idiosyncratic. So it's what the person themselves values. And that's why it works, um, because everyone's got a different idea about what, what it's, what's going to matter and how they're going to be able to do it. I've seen people who can't get up in the morning that, um, and really struggle with that. And when you, you talk to them, it's very hard to follow them. But once they become part of um, what I would call a pro-social group, which is designed to help people have even worse off than them, and, and the, they do it in a residential setting, that person is up, that person is clear, um, and, and that person is focused. And so that's, again, the theory of modes. It's bringing out the, their best self. And so that's why I say you never know for sure what person, the people's potential are, but you also don't really know, um, you know, essentially, um, it, it might seem like they're really, they don't have skills. It might seem like they really, um, uh, they haven't even started life. But in fact, it's amazing, as, as one of the trainees once said, so the, the key is inside them. It's always inside them. So the connection part is really about being able to, show them that you value them, do things that are valuable together, and to begin to work together in an equalized way, because they have to often feel down. So it's one of the ways that we connect with people is to have them teach us. Hmm. And that's actually a real switch in therapy, because usually yeah. the therapist, I'm the therapist, you're the patient, I'm gonna help you. And for, for our, the people we're working with, and I would venture to say it's bigger than that. The, 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 them helping us really opens everything up. It's like, they're like thirsting to be able to do something that, that matters. Um, and that makes a difference.
So, and then the third part, which I cut you off on. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> That'd be a very good interview. Um, the third part is um, empowerment. That's mm-hmm. the third part. You got it right. Connection. Um, then you want to do value-related activity that's that's connected. And aspirations turns out to be a really good target. We're talking about that. And the third thing is empowerment. And the empowerment is inside everybody. You know, um, and it's really discovering your own power and developing it. It's not, it's not that the providers give it to you. Cause again, that's that same, it's, it's inside everybody. And most people, I mean, I think this goes all the way back um, to, to research in the nineties um, that people do better in crises than they expect to do. Um, they have a lot of strength within them and they, but their beliefs about that are often that they don't. Um, and that makes them, you know, that makes them anxious. That makes them make some other decisions. But I would say that, 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 once you have somebody going, they're doing this stuff that matters to them. That's when all the stuff's going to come up that got them whatever level of care they're in. And that's the perfect time to sort of really develop how it is you're going to handle it because you can handle it. As, as we say in our training, you know, I got this. Just sit and imagine um, that you have no social connections. You're not really connecting with family. You're not doing anything with friends. You're not doing anything that gives you meaning or having impact or anything where you're feeling productive or good about yourself, or you feel like you're giving back. Um, I, I think everybody can imagine just picturing that how much their world would shrink. Like what would you do if you were in a situation where you couldn't love and, and you couldn't connect and you couldn't, you couldn't move yourself forward. I, I mean, I think a lot of people would shut down. Well, and I think that's, uh, if you got that much, you got my message. Yeah, I no. think that's, that's what makes it relatable. That makes it, it makes it relatable. One thing I will tell you, you remind me of this. Um, one of the things that came up in the COVID um, pandemic has come up is that the individuals who are in hospitals um, and, and in residences um, are actually, for the most part, dealing with it better than staff, you know, just across the board. And the reason for that, I propose is they know what it's like to have their freedom taken away from them. They know what it's like to not have control. They know what it's like to have uncertainty about what the future is like. They live with it every single day. And mm-hmm. so it, prov- it provides a beautiful opportunity for the staff to, to talk with the individuals about that because that's actually their experience. Um, and what's different now is that everyone's <laughs> facing mm-hmm. it to a certain extent, especially when, when we were sheltering at home, which you know we, we probably could end up doing again. Uh, the sheltering at home feels a hell of a lot like not having the freedom that you're used to having. And then there being, and then the idea that there's dangerous things out there that you have to be careful about. is also, again, very common experience. Um, and it's that strength they're talking about. It's kind of that grace under pressure. You know, I had, a, I had something I, I meant to say earlier, and I don't know if it's going to throw you off if I throw it in now. No, no, please. Um, um, because I think, I think you have people who, some of the people who are listening to this are, are trained as therapists. Um, there's a lot of the different um, pieces of therapy that you learn about that are in this approach. And one of the most important ones is the stuff that comes from Rogers, for example, in terms of the relationship. Um, the, a lot of the people who get the diagnosis, um, who are given the diagnosis we're talking about, like schizophrenia, that kind of thing, um, are very, very attuned to people treating them badly, rejecting them, not being honest. They're very good at detecting these things. So, so the genuineness, you have to be genuine um, when you when you talk with them and when you show your interest in them, if you're not genuine, they will know and it won't work. Um, so it's just a basic principle. Similarly, the warmth, the warmth is critical because a lot of the people are quickly looking for any sign that you're going to be hostile or you're not going to be, um, you know, you're going to be somebody that they'll be regret um, any kind of taking a chance with. Right. So so essentially you have that the sort of triad of uh, you know the genuineness you know, the warmth, but, you know, which kind of fits with the, the unconditional regard. So the relationship is critical. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you know this, but um, uh, some of the people who listen to this might know that Roger spent a lot of time working on schizophrenia. Um, but he did it. He tried to do it largely from a verbal standpoint. And so one of the one of the cool things that happened early in my career is Rob DeRubis gave me a chapter from um, Roger's book on this. And it's called The Quiet Man. And so this was a guy with negative symptoms, a guy who didn't talk a lot. And so the way the report is written is that they have an exchange and then 15 minutes of silence ensued. And then the guy said something so I could reflect it back to him. Um, and then 20 minutes of silence ensued. Then the guy said something and he reflected it back to him. Um, we use reflective listening a lot 
but it's not the only thing we have. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think it's a it's an interesting thing. But, but so, anyways, the Rogers part is really um, really critical. But another thing that you might find interesting is Maslow. So there's a way to look at what what we do um, through a Maslow sort of um, uh, prism. Haha. So here's the idea, right? Most people actually this is more common in the culture than back um, is the Maslow pyramid. I've been in groups, uh, very NAMI groups, various groups where people don't haven't taken a psychology class that already hardly even know what it means. Um, but I say, do you know Maslow's pyramid? All the hands go up and they tell you about it. Here's what we're doing. We're working with people, our focus, focal group of people are people, the bottom part of Maslow's pyramid, right? It's a hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the bottom parts are the parts that, that involve sort of daily living, sort of you know, taking care of your needs, that kind of thing. And the upper parts are more these more highfalutin things. Um, that we've been talking about. So what I usually do is I have a group say, so just think of the top. I know he called it self-actualization, but there's some support for thinking of it. It's kind of like, that's your mission. That's your purpose. That's what you think your life is, the difference your life makes. We're working with people who struggle with the bottom part. They can't seem to get through the bottom part, but here's what we're doing. We're helping them identify what that mission is and helping them get some of the excitement out of that mission. And that's what helps them get through the, 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 the everyday living stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of us do the same thing. We just haven't we just haven't organized it that way. But that's another way of thinking about it. So the ideas of aspirations and purpose and values, you see a lot of that in um, in in the humanistic uh, tradition and, and Maslow in particular. Again, the difference is we have Beck's cognitive models, a way of understanding what that mission is and that best self is um, and the meanings that people can derive from it, um, which which makes us a little different. And then we're very active in terms of pursuing it. We also don't think it's a linear kind of thing at all. It all happens at once. That triangle is what we live every day. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, oftentimes we think of things like one directional, but they're usually not. And so maybe, you know, this pyramid has a bunch of different arrows. Like, you know, it's not just, you know, block, 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 you know, that it goes goes up and down. Um, so you talked about helping people get to a more adaptive mode because uh, they're in a disconnected mode in schizophrenia. And I, and I, I don't know how far you guys have gotten, um, with translating this from schizophrenia to say depression, anxiety, which we often see outpatient, but what are the modes that mm-hmm. we're trying to help? What are modes that are people stuck in with depression, anxiety? Um, and then how are we, how are you speculating that you then move them to a more adaptive mode? Yeah, a, c- a couple ideas there. Um, I, mean, I, th- I mean, I think with depression, it's it's like a demoralized mode, um, and this re- this real sense of, in which um, you're you're just you're just a failure, um, and and you're you're hopeless, you're useless, all all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, Beck and I were talking about this um, at some point, um, and it seems like for the people who have depression, everyone's telling them they're better than they think they are, right? And so it's trying to help them from the inside recognize that that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the people that we work with, it's the opposite. What happens is everyone tells them they're broken. Everyone tells them they do. And so, and so, so when they say those things, there's not the same dissonance. And so what we're trying to say is, no, no, I think it's some, more similar. They, they have, so the person with depression has, has these kinds of ideas about them. So that's the mood they get. And then everything gets sucked in through that. Um, and it's, I, I've, I've certainly had some pretty serious depressions myself, and I, I, I can recognize how that feels. But there are glimmers in that. Actually, this is something I've been wanting to put on a, something for ABCT. We used to, uh, when I learned from Jude B. Beck how to do cognitive therapy, you were looking for affect shifts, but the negative ones, because that's mm-hmm. when you want to learn about those core beliefs and all that kind of stuff. Now what we're looking for is the reverse. We're looking for the affect shift that shows you the positive. And yeah. so what happens with someone with depression is they, 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 we all have a negative bias. There's a stronger. And so they're noticing all the negative things. But what's the best thing that happened this week? Actually, Judy Becker started to do this. What's, I know it, was, oh, it sounds like it's really a lot of bad stuff. What was the best thing that happened this week? And then someone will tell you, oh, um, you know, um, I had a phone call with my niece um, and I was able to help her with this, that, and the other thing. Ooh, what did that feel like? So, so the, the approach, and so that's, and then, and then all of a sudden the person is sounding different. You've got their adaptive mode going because um, the adaptive mode can come on like that, right? So what we want to do is we want to help them focus more on the, the, the brain value. Um, and then to notice the meanings of that. Um, but the modes that get them stuck are going to be related to demoralization, um, which is related to the self-concept. With anxiety, I think it's a safety mode. I think it's mm-hmm. a safety mode, sort of dealing with uncertainty. Um, that's actually what, the two we focused on when we did the COVID presentation, because I think those are kind of go hand in hand um, with a lot of people. So you have this sort of sense of uncertainty. You have this sense uh, that you need to be safe and you're not sure how you're going to be safe, where are things going? Um, you know, am I going to be able to I have a job, all the things we worry about, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then that can kick into this idea. Well, maybe it's not worth trying anyway. 
you know, and again, those kinds of things are adaptive to a certain extent, but then they're really not adaptive. And so our focus is to, again, find the person's best self, find that, that, that sort of the, the rich person and the things they want to do and may help them plan that into their life. Um, and then, and then be able to, um, notice what that means about them. Um, and then what we find is that often we don't have to go aggressively into sort of um, what, what is the word, um, you know, disprove, uh, Beck would hate to hear me say it that way, but, but help them see it differently. And instead we're trying to help them live it differently and then draw the conclusions based on that. After, after that. So for the people here that have never had a cognitive therapy, there's probably people listening that have never had a therapy session, but for someone here that's never had a cognitive therapy session, uh, n- never mind this new, new mode, what would it look like, you know, for a prototypical cognitive therapy session? And then what would this type of session, this recovery oriented session look like? How, how, how would each look and how would it be different? That's a great question. I like that. I don't typically um, think so structurally, but I like that you're having me do it. Yeah, so a traditional cognitive therapy session is really um, very circumscribed, even though if you watch it, if you ever get a chance to see Beck do one, um, you'd hardly know that. Um, but but so initially, um, you, you'd show up, um, and after just a little bit of uh, just sort of friendly small talk, um, you try to sort of set an agenda for the session. So um, what do you want to work on? Um, what, what do we want to focus on? Again, that's... That definitely brought that to this, this kind of thing, really trying to focus it, make it mutual. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, you, you might, might say, um, you know, I want to tell you about this thing that happened with my wife, that kind of thing this week. And, um, maybe we'll go over the homework I was supposed to do. Then you sort of have a, just a check in to see how the week went, sort of figure out if there's anything that would add to it. Um, and then you work your way through the agenda. Um, and usually it's problem focused because again, that's, that's certainly Beck's orientation, but he also I think pulled that from the behavioral tradition, try to really focus it in on concrete things that are happening in people's lives and, and try to help them maybe see it more accurately. So you'd work, you'd work on a couple of problems. Um, it might very well be the case that whatever, whatever it is that you're working on, um, you would sort of maybe see if they could see how they were thinking about things in, in the particular situation or how they're thinking about them now um, and have them evaluate whether or not there might be a, a more helpful way to think about it. Um, the session would would usually end um, by coming up with some kind of action plan. Is there some way of applying what it is that we did in this session um, right now to, to something you're going to do this week and maybe make some plans? Certainly for somebody who's got a more severe depression, um, what you might be doing is trying to help them schedule activities into their life to get a little bit more active. So they might get a, more, a little more energy and be able to pull away from some of the, the sort of inactivity and that kind of thing. Um, in, in our approach, um, one of the things that we, we learned pretty quickly is the best way a lot of times to lose somebody and lose your relationship with somebody is to set an agenda. Um, you know, so if so I meet with you and, you, you know, you, you've, uh, you're, you know, maybe you're in a Come, come from your residence, someone brought you in. And, and they say, so what do you say we set an agenda? Uh, agenda, kind of thing. So we learned that we couldn't really be so formal like that. Also, also it started, it kind of imposes a, um, a power structure, which we didn't want. There's all, all this power that runs through these kinds of things that when everyone's accepting, oh, look, I want to get better and you can help me, you're the expert, that's great. But for our people, they, they feel so pushed down that that, that just, that they either get demoralized or they don't show up. So we needed, we needed to start with activity. We need to start by doing things. Um, and so, and then we can have a conversation in the midst of all of that about, about, about what's going on. But, but ultimately what we want to be doing is we, we, we might, we might very well, this is the other thing, we might very well get out of an office. Um, and this is sometimes challenging for people because they, they're not used to functioning this way. Um, but a lot of people get really shut down by being in an office. Say, hey, what do you say we just go out for a walk in the garden? Or we go down to the um, the cafe downstairs and we get a coffee. Um, and as we do that, we have a conversation about how things are going. Uh, we talk about the activities that they're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is is to tap into the to the to their to their access to motivation, to their energy, to our connection, to to build our connection. Um, and then and then and then we really want to think about um, what's going well in the week and what kinds of things that that we might be doing um, and what they might want to be doing. Um, and if we've um, and if we come far enough in the whole thing, um, we might we might be starting to talk about their aspirations and sort of helping them really make those rich for themselves. We we create sometimes what's called a recovery image, so the person really has a beautiful image of of what their of what their life is going to be like. You know, um, I'm sitting in my new house and, and I'm on a soft chair with this cute dog in front of me and it's barking. I'm, I'm on my computer talking to people on the internet, trying to get together with my friends later. Again, somebody who's completely isolated in a hospital, having those kinds of images that can bring to mind when, when the challenges come up, 
So, so the sessions are, are, are much more free form. They're much more activity based. You might see, I once had somebody say, I'm going to say this here because maybe they'll watch. I once had somebody say, I did not go to grad school and get a PhD. So I would sit in my office and watch Family Guy with uh, one of my people. Turns out watching YouTube videos is one of the best things you can do because it's normalizing. We all laugh together. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then we can start talking about what we like about that. Or there are other things like that you could be doing during your week, things you could do with other people, that kind of thing. So it's, 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 um, I think the traditional cognitive therapy session is a lot, of, a lot more talking, a lot more thinking about um, your thinking, thinking about um, some of the bad things that happened and maybe other ways you can, you can think about those. And what you see in ours is there's a lot of work on doing stuff together, um, sometimes planning stuff and evaluating stuff, thinking about the big picture, always making sure that, that really that's in your life every day. Um, and then, and then empowerment, ultimately the empowerment bit might be, you know, something got in the way this week or something came up. And, and so let's, let's think about that. And that's when it would start to look a little bit more like traditional cognitive therapy. But one of the things that I think we do in, a, in, in all of our work that goes all the way back to the 63 is really helping the person, you know, what, 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 um, cognitive therapists call guided discovery. Um, I don't like to use that kind of word with the people we're working with our staff because it puts them off. But the idea is that really helping them notice the good things they're doing, the meanings that they're experiencing, and to try to really grow those and notice those. Because shifting the bias essentially to this more positive bias, which I think serves people better. Hmm. Um, and, you know, what, what I'm thinking about it, I think about with traditional cognitive therapy, we're often looking at, well, what was difficult this week? What were you anxious about? What were you depressed about? And then how could we have looked at that differently? Or how can you view that differently now? And then this might be too simple of a, of a way of conceptualizing it, but this is more so how do you want to live in your values going forward? And let's look at the barriers here and deconstruct the barriers, maybe using those traditional tools that that we use in traditional cognitive therapy yeah i would say i would say we, let's let's do it <laughs> and then find out what the barriers are Got i would it. say it's let's do it because we're um we're very much an act action oriented um and we need we needed that we need that because some of the people that we started working with um they would love to tell you all kinds of things because they value the connection but they're scared to try anything they're scared to do it so that's why we do it together um but if we if we if we, if we had them schedule it and do it, they won't do it because their fear is too big. It's interesting with some with negative symptoms, they don't show a lot of emotion a lot of times, but they really are afraid. And so a week after week, you know, I've even had people say, so what do you think about maybe looking into the school that you said you're really interested in? Not this year, maybe next year, maybe the year after that, that kind of thing. There's so, so, so we really have an action orientation. So we're doing stuff that has the meaning and sometimes the, um, the, the, the thoughts about what would be an obstacle aren't just aren't there. We've had people that just begin to move forward and all the stuff that they thought was going to be a problem wasn't. And then mm -hmm. they got involved in their life. Um, in other, in other cases, it just pops right up. And then when it pops up, that's when we deal with it. But mm -hmm. I would say it's not that we anticipate the problems before doing we do. And then work with the problems. So, you know, about a quarter to a half of my caseload is OCD, has OCD. And, <laughs> you know, another good chunk has uh, generalized anxiety or other forms of anxiety. Um, they say that I, I was to do this, you know, take more of approach in the session. How would that look when I'm, when I'm treating either OCD or GAD? Okay. Um, let's take OCD. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Cause I think, I think that's a pretty, pretty good one. So, so I guess my, my question would be, um, we'd sort of start off by um, trying to figure out what the person's like at their best. Um, and you might be able to ask some of the people with OCD, they might be able to tell you, or um, you might be able to do some things with them to see what that's like. So what, what are their interests? What, what really gets them excited? That kind of thing. Um, okay. So we try to develop um, a little bit along those lines. Um, what, what sort of, and then, and then, and then, and then maybe branching into thinking about some bigger things that they might not be able to do. Um, and what, what are those, right? Trying to get what that is. Um, and then, and then to see whether or not, um, almost all cases, this is true. The OCD is getting in the way of that, right? But cause some, some of, some of what I think when we're dealing with uh, anxiety and, and with strong fear is usually the, whatever it is you want to be doing that that's getting in the way of isn't strong enough. So what we want to do is we want to amp up the appetite for the good stuff. So we want to have some of those experiences together. We want to make sure those are happening in however way we can get them. Um, and we want to amp that up. 
That's how we've gotten people who are afraid of leaving the hospital, leave the hospital after 50, 60 years. I mean, imagine how the world has changed um, mm -hmm. in 50 years, right? And you, you, you went into the hospital when, when you know, um, Gerald Ford or something was president. And now you're thinking of it coming out. You've got to be kidding me. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that. But, but the way that they ultimately get to do it, and you know, maybe the, you don't like that analogy, but I think sometimes um, OCD feels like a prison or, or like an institution to people. Um, you've got to build up the appetite for the good stuff. The good stuff has to really stand out. Um, I think it's the, getting rid of the OCD just to get rid of it because it's, it's painful, I think it's hard for people to do. Just like it's hard for people to stop, stop using and it's hard for people to stop hurting themselves or any of these things. So, so that, that would be how we would switch it. I mean, then we would try to sort of find the, the, the right kinds of activities where well, we've had people do this. We haven't left their homes um, in, in years and years and years and years. And there's something that really is exciting to them. And they do. <laughs> so, so that's kind of where the changes we and, and then and then when it comes up in the, in the field. Right. What can they do to have it not not get in their way? But I think we would be working on trying to get the get, get the appetite going and get it, get the really, really feel the whole person is really meeting their values um, and, and that the OCD is really getting in the way. And so how can we work with that and, and be able to do the cool things? Got it. So then you use like exposure or some of these more traditional techniques, having people confront yeah, we, their fears we, yeah, to get them there. Found we didn't, don't even need exposure, oh, <laughs> but, interesting. but, that's, but it's, it's as, it's as you like, what we're really trying to focus on is getting them to, to do the things that they really want to do. And you usually you can build it out of your own relationships. What I'm trying to say to you, it's just that it doesn't. It isn't. Um, well, I think what you should do is go do that. We can do it together first and see how it works. Got yeah, it. You can definitely use exposure. You can use anything that you got that's going to help the person. Um, you know, same same thing with somebody who's got PTSD. You know, to calm down the memory enough um, so so that they're not focusing on it as much. But but only in the context of well. So let's say that the okay. So here's a question we do ask. So let's say you know. You didn't have these OCD things sort of bothering you anymore. If that was any way, what would you be doing? What would you be getting? What would you want? And, you know, they might come back and say, I, I don't know. I'd just be a normal person. Well, tell me more about that. What, what, what would that look like? What, you know, what would you be doing? Who would you be doing it with? What would you, you know, that kind of thing. So that's kind of, we really want to crack open that appetite, the positive side of things. Um, and really the whole person. I actually think that's one of the reasons that the, the approach has um, some appeal to people who normally don't like treatment, because that's how we developed it. We needed to, we couldn't come to them and say, we've got this wonderful snake oil, don't you want to take it? Um, they, they're used to that. They're, they're usually on something called, so you really got to embrace the human. So I, I think that's what we've seen across the board. I know that um, Judy Beck and, and her clinic um, at uh, the, the Beck Institute for Cognitive Therapy, they began to incorporate some of this stuff. And I would say they have more of a hybrid model. What they're, what they're trying to do is shift their focus like you talked about so not just focusing on the negative things that happened or the problems that you had but also identifying some of the things that aren't the problems that you had and trying to amp that up a little bit i would say the difference is i want to put it in a big framework of the of the person and their and their really big desires because um, i think that's going to give us some power when it comes to overcoming what i would say are some of the hardest things we face hmm. really really hard things i mean um, I've been um, on the side of a cliff or something like that and, and thought, wow, I could die here. Um, scary. That's what the people experience that you're talking about. That the, the, the fear is so overwhelming to them. It's so hardest, one of the hardest things to overcome, that kind of stuff. Hmm. That's why so, I think we need that. So it's less, about, it's less about the focus on symptom reduction and it's more so the, the focus on increasing your valued behavior. And by doing that, You'll have symptom reduction if symptoms are getting in the way of doing that, then you would then more pointedly do that. Yeah. But overall, or, yeah. But what I would say is, or just um, the salience of the symptom is less. Um, hmm. The reason I say this, and I just, just from my experience talking to people who done a beautiful job of covering, um, I can think of this guy um, who, um, who was really, really suicidal, many, many suicide attempts. And now, and now he works as a peer specialist and that kind of thing. And he says, I still have all the thoughts. They're still there. Um, but what I do with them is different. So the, the thing, so, so one of the reasons I backed into what I'm saying now is because I can't guarantee it'll, so voices is another example. You can't guarantee the voices are going to go away. And certainly people who take in medicine for them and found them still there kind of know what that's like, but your relationship to them, what you do with them could be different. Um, and so the guy with the, with the, with the suicidal thoughts, that kind of thing, they're still there. They're, they're, they're there a lot. They don't act on it. 
there was, okay, okay, this is the kind of, this is my doubt, whatever it is. Same with the voices. It's just something that's there. But if I focus a lot on it, I won't be able to do what I want. What do I really want to do? Um, and, and that's kind of what you, that's where I, what I think empowerment is. And I, and so I just think, I think that getting rid of the psychopathology at its base, I'm not sure that that's, you know, we all have anxiety. Anxiety helps us. So we really got rid of anxiety. So several of us would be dead, probably me. Mm-hmm. So, so anyways, just trying to, try to so, so, so that's why I think that Beck likes, and I, I follow him in this, thinking of it as an adaptive method. So it's an adaptive method. It's working for you, getting the stuff that work for you, um, and rather than get in your way. Got it. And, and I think it goes back to what you said before that just because you reduce symptoms doesn't mean that people are then going to automatically yeah. be adaptive or work yeah. towards being productive. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I think- I, it happens. It, it does happen where you get rid of one and automatically jump starts the other more, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah, no, and I, I'm not trying to be pessimistic about the fact it's true. Some people can find it goes away completely. I realize that, but I'm, I'm always keeping my eyes on the fact we might not be able to do that. But the truth is the catastrophizing is not about that. It's about the fact they're not going to be able to have the life they want or Mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to handle things and that kind of thing. And that's where the action is. is. And so where do you see things going? Do you see this as like another form, another form of therapy that um, might work for a certain population where more traditional um, cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT like will, will, you know, might be more useful for different people? Or do you see this as something as, um, the field moving towards towards this direction, kind of like this is an advancement in our in our understanding. Well, you know, I hope this isn't dodging your question, but I, I want because of my background and and, and my connection to to Aaron Beck. Um, I saw him say something in ABCT that I think is an answer to this question because he was posed this question very similar, and I reminded him of his answer recently. I didn't remember. So what he, what he said is that he, he'd been giving this lecture on the biology of CBT, which wasn't exactly exciting the therapists in the crowd. It's cool. There might be some biology, but come on, give me some therapy stuff. He said, I think in the future, what you're going to find is what cognitive therapy looks like could change radically. It could look very different. He said, but I think the cognitive model will be with us always. He said, I think that's solid. It's got a lot of research behind it, but the way that you bring it to bear could be very different. And that's what I think about what we're doing. We're completely using the cognitive model. It guides all that we're doing. We're going to actually expand it beyond even what I think he thought we could do with it. But the way we're doing it looks really different. Um, so so as, as we might say, two people might do something very similarly, um, but the intentionality behind it in that therapy is very different. So I think that this approach actually has a lot of promise for a lot of people who may not have responded. Um, or for, for like younger people that I think have been unappealing to people or be like are mature enough now to say we can do stuff that doesn't look serious and it's some of the best things we could be doing. I think back in the sixties, it had to look serious or people thought, well, this isn't real. This isn't good. So I think, I think actually has, it could have a really big future. Um, even if it doesn't really extend it to outpatient in the way we've just described. We're finding that when we work in, a, in, in congregate care settings like hospitals and, and residences, um, it's very useful across all of the staffs. So, so people with not a lot of education can get it and they can do it because they already do it in their regular lives. They just don't see how they do that and how that would be applicable. And they've been told, you've got to be therapeutic. You've got to be therapeutic. Well, if the best therapy doesn't look like therapy, then what are we doing? Well, connection, purpose, hope, and action doing things. This is all stuff we can do. So even if it didn't catch on there, I think in these settings, it's what's needed. Um, if I can say so, or something like it is what's needed. Um, because the, 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 the environments foster, I think, a prolongation of the disability that they're are supposed to be meant to, to, um, ameliorate. There's a, there's a quote by, um, Irving Goffman in his book on asylums, um, where he said, being in an asylum with Julia State Hospital, um, and whatever we call them now, um, is like learning how to ride a bicycle underwater. When do you ever need to ride a bicycle underwater? Oh, when you're in a state hospital, but not when you're in the world. Mm-hmm. That's not the, w- the way it's supposed to be. Whatever it should be, should be about your life. And you're right. You're riding the bicycle in the state hospital. You're doing it at site. So our focus on the life you want, how you're going to do it, getting it started, even in these really restrictive levels of care, um, and then being able to extend that as you get out. It, it, it has a real, um, I think a real promise. 
And regarding the, the research, so, so this is a, a much newer therapy, so we're not going to have years and years of research on it. So insofar, where's the research shown that this is like empirically supported, like that it's effective for? So psychosis, I would assume, definitely. Um, is there anywhere else? And what are we finding with psychosis? So, so um, where we where we validated that the uh, the approaches with without patients um, and uh, um, largely people who are inactive um, didn't don't do a lot. Um, so we have, we have a that that's our that's our our, our clinical study, um, a randomized control style with all of the bells and whistles in it. Um, and then what we've done is we've we've done program evaluations in in sort of other settings, but we do pretty well um, in community and hospital settings. Doing research in some of those settings is tricky. And so that's one of the reasons I can't give you the kind of research answer um, for mm -hmm. those, but, but definitely um, very applicable for, for, for people who have a difficult time accessing motivation with the psychiatrist call a motivation that happens to be a particular strength of ours. And that's an area that uh, there's nothing for, there's nothing for, I mean, they keep looking for a pharmacotherapy um, sort of intervention there. Um, so, I, so I would say that, and then, of course, something that um, people often don't think about is that um, a lot of the empirical support is for the conceptual model. And we have a ton of, of that. Um, we have less in the clinical studies, um, but more in, in, in terms of the, the, the there's a lot of research into the into the negative beliefs that hold people back. Um, I can the, the first uh, first paper we did on this um, identified something called the fetus beliefs, which we thought was sort of in front of the people having difficulty with energy and, and motivation and even getting started on stuff. Um, and groups all over the world have, have found the relationship between these beliefs and those kinds of things. But um, modern research methods have pushed it a little bit. So you have you give people cell phones and you find that they're experiencing these beliefs all throughout the day to the degree they experience these beliefs. They're less likely to leave their home. They're less likely to even move. You, so you can do all of that with cell phone recordings. Um, whereas the, when people have them less, they're um, they're out in the world. They're doing more. They, they, you could draw basically a circle around where, where they go, and that circle expands. And we often talk about the expanding uh, life space. I think it's actually literal for for, for our people. Um, so I think I think that um, there's a lot of evidence that um, that about what holds them back. And we have some new papers we're putting together where we're really showing that the mechanism of change in this approach is really the activation and accessibility of these positive beliefs. And so one of the one of the areas we really want to take, so like in the clinical trial, that's what I can show you, um, to the degree somebody's changing um, the, their endorsement of their positive beliefs, they're much, much more likely to be doing stuff in the community and being more active. If you think that everyone in the study started at a very inactive, um, not doing a lot of space, it's pretty, pretty impressive. So the, where I think it's going is going to be to use these kinds of methods to, to really tap into what is happening to people as they get their, their life back. Because we really are starting with people, some people who spend all day listening to voices or spend all day um, <clears throat> doing something that's consistent with a belief that a psychiatrist would call a delusion. Um, and, and they really haven't talked about any kind of life or anything for, for decades. And now they're starting and they're moving along. What's that like? And how does that work? So, so that's kind of where we're at. We can show we can show in the, in, in the settings that we're in that people improve. You can you can show a reduction in um, rehospitalization rates, reductions in in reincarceration rates. Um, you can show improvement in terms of the daily life. So all of these kinds of things that we're seeing. Um, but we really haven't focused research so much on the how can I put this the milder end of the continuum, which is not to say it's mild, but I think mm -hmm. most people when they look at the things I was just talking about, um, that seems. Yeah, that's why the, the high level of care is, is often uh, is, is instituted. Um, but um, but I but I think there's there's a there's a lot to be done in that area as well. And but, in the outpatient study, what was the population that that the treatment was being? Uh, uh, those are people who had diagnosis of schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and they and they were in the community, um, and they had to have elevated negative symptoms, which wasn't too hard to find. Mm -hmm. um, right. And when you say it's a treatment for lack of motivation, I mean, so, so many things flew through my head thinking about depression where you have somebody who's just not, uh, not so willing to go ahead and, and do productive behavior. And they say, well, I know I should, but I'm just not in the mood. I don't feel like it. Um, and you know, this more value oriented approach. And I think you just kept like saying like, you know, increasing the appetite, increasing the appetite for, for change, increasing the appetite towards the value, um, is going to be a very helpful approach to get 
some of these people moving more and the more behavior they do, the better, uh, the better they're going to feel. And, and, and it's going to go rather than just doing some, you know, typical scheduling of, well, you could cook at this time and work out at this time. And, you know, just doing just like kind of just like a regular like behavioral activation plan. Yeah. That's why we, we don't think of it as, again, I was telling you, you could have people doing the same thing, but they have a very different intentionality behind it. And so I've heard people describe this as behavior activation. And the reason I don't think it is, is we know that all activities aren't created equal. Mm -hmm. um, it's not about being busy. In fact, some of the people we work with, if you tell them that you, you just need to be busy, they get insulted. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> insulting. I'm supposed to be busy, right? So, so it's doing things that you enjoy or that bring you value that are, that are the ones that work. And that's what you're saying. It's not just the more I do, the better I feel. It's the more I do these kinds of things, the better I feel. And what we can do is we can take advantage of our relationship. So our, our clinical relationship can have that in it. We can experience it together. Gee, how are you feeling now? We, we just, uh, we just listened to, you know, uh, that the, the little bit of music that way. How do you feel? Feeling a little better? I'm feeling better. Yeah, I'm feeling better. Hmm. Um, what do you think about it? What does it say about maybe doing it other times? Do you think you feel better? So that's the way we do it. We do it very much as a experiential drawing conclusions and then trying to build it out that way. So anything that we, were, that we think could be valuable for the person, we've got to experience with them. And as we, it's really hard to deny it when you're experiencing it. Um, whereas after the fact, you can always sort of change your mind about it and that kind of thing. So, so I'm going to ask you a very broad question here to, to wrap up. So if somebody is listening to this and it's just, they're just thinking about their everyday life, everyday life, how, how can I be happier? How can I be less stressed? How can I be less anxious? How can I get more out of life? What is the one piece or recommendation that you would take out of this new, out of your new understanding of how to do therapy that they should take with them and that maybe be useful for them to implement? Mm -hmm. Um, I would have them think about, um, time or some times when they, when they felt like they were uh, having the most sense of purpose, sort of what, what did that feel like? What were they doing? And what did that feel like? And are there other times that they had that feeling? And what are those kinds of activities? Cause I think the thing that really is so helpful to everybody is to be in touch with what that is. So much of what we do in life we get carried away with all of these obligations that we have. A lot of them may have started being tied to something like that, but maybe they, maybe they, ha they aren't anymore. Um, but I think that's, that's really where it might be. And, and I've learned that from the people who are stuck in hospitals and residences and things like that, because that seems to be the thing they were missing. And when they get that, they start to get that. That can sort of, an, it's, it just really makes such a big difference. And I, but I think it's true for all of us. Um, where, where's, where's the place where you feel, and usually, at least for so many people I know, it involves something that's touching other people in some way, something with other people. Um, so it could be something like, um, uh, you know, doing some kind of skills with, um, with, with people who are younger, helping people who are younger. Maybe, maybe it involves something you do with a, with a group of, of friends that you all have a role in. Um, whatever it is, that's the stuff I think that's the fiber of life. Um, and we can't control, you know, whether an illness is going to get to us. We can't control whether we're going to lose the, lose the people that are so important to us. Um, but we can control if we do these activities that bring us purpose. Um, we've been able to bring this to people who have to be handcuffed the whole time they're in an interaction with you. And you can still find a way for them to do it. We're creative people. And so we can be creative about our purpose. That's mm -hmm. what I would say. Okay. So if people want to, um, follow you or follow th this style of therapy, how, how can they get in touch and learn more? Or how can they, um, link in to see what's going on? Okay. Um, so we, we, um, we have a center, um, that, that we run at the Beck Institute for cognitive therapy, which is located in Philadelphia. So it's a center for recovery oriented cognitive therapy. Um, we have a, if you go to the website, if you type that into Google, you will find us, um, and there's lots of resources there. Um, we also have a book coming out. Um, it's called Recovery Oriented Cognitive Therapy for Serious Mental Health Conditions. Guilford Press should be out in December. Um, if you type that into Google, you'll see a really, really beautiful picture of a tree. Um, that's a part of the cover of it. And uh, I think it's very positive. So those are, those are two ways that I could think of that, that might be, um, particularly useful. Um, if we ever, um, if we ever go back to, um, having conferences in person and things like that, um, we tend to go to the, uh, you, can, you can learn more if you go to the, the Association for the Advancement of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies 
um, is one is one of the places. Um, and we're also um, trying to connect up more with advocacy groups. And so that might be another way to, to get to us. Um, so sort of, uh, Mental Health America and National Alliance of Mental Illness. Okay. And, and uh, I think there's a big congratulations because I think last week you made your deadline for getting the, uh, the book to the publisher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so congratulations yeah, it was, on that. It'd be a false promise. <laughs> the website for the book if you didn't get it in. You didn't get Thank it you. in. So I'm sure that's a big, big piece of stress to, to get off your plate. Well, and I hope that if there's anybody who's listening to this who gives it a look um, and finds it useful, we'd love to know that, that it makes making a difference. Point. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and spending uh, the time. I think that we, you have a new approach here. Um, you know, some people have heard about it. Not everybody's heard about it. And so definitely uh, providers could hear about this different style. Uh, people that are going into therapy might want, might find this, that this really connects to them, this more action oriented, value oriented type therapy mm -hmm. and might be more mindful for, for looking that sort of thing. And also seeing about where, where the field uh, is moving and how we're viewing how to improve therapy and that we're not just stagnant in our beliefs, but we're constantly trying to improve. I like that. All right. Well, I'll link um, the book and the webpage and the Beck Institute to the to the notes of Super. this uh, podcast for anybody that wants to see. And uh, sure, I'll be seeing you sometime in the near future.